One of my favorite quotes is from James Clare that says, We don't rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. Activation is around building a system that makes sure that you actually accomplish your OKR. It's not just the things that you're going to do, but in my perspective, what you will not do. Because every team has a limited amount of time and passion and engagement. So your job as a manager is to be very judicious in the use of that time, the passion, and even the trust, right? They're not going to, you don't, no manager has limited amounts of trust and engagement and passion and time from their team. In this episode of Dreams with Deadlines, we chat with Mukam Tamon, the founder of the Chief Excellence Officer Academy. He shares his journey from network engineer to OKR visionary and his bold coaching framework for executing successful OKRs. Here are a few of the things we talked about. Mukam's evolution in understanding how business systems build efficiency and effectiveness, and the books that helped shape his thinking. The interplay between 40X, OKRs, and their impact on workplace cultures. How Mukam's Zipper Canvas helps clients adopt OKRs seamlessly by clarifying how teams create, deliver, capture, and measure value. To wrap it up, Mukam delivers some inspiring answers to our signature quickfire questions. Let's jump in. As always, I am super stoked because our guest today, I would say, is probably the most bold OKR coach that I have seen to date. He's an OKR coach and trainer specializing in mentoring frontline managers, which makes him very unique. He has a specific approach to applying OKRs in different business situations, which he has built in his 13 years of experience with management and strategy. I want to welcome to the show the Chief Excellence Officer, Mukam. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jenny. I'm glad to be here and I'm quite excited. So we're going to kick it off with what I learned from someone else, the OKR origin story. Let us in on how you arrived at OKRs. How did you discover it? OKRs came in at around what I call the third of my four phases of my transition from being an individual contributor to being someone who teaches and talks about, writes about management. So if I go back to 2009, I flew to the island of Mauritius, beautiful paradise island. That's where all the wealthy Europeans come for honeymoons. <laughs> I took on a job at one of the five companies that manages the internet. And I was going to, my job was mainly to train network engineers how to build internet networks. But I had a couple of problems. The very first one is that network engineers, very good engineers. They're really elitists, right? <laughs> and they're classist. If you don't know what you're talking about, they are very brutal in the kind of feedback that they give you. Now, second thing is that I have not having worked widely in the industry, I didn't have credibility with this audience. Now, one of my personal values is excellence. That's why Chief Excellence of his Academy, right? And the lever that I turned to was the lever of efficiency. So I had to become an expert and really productive person. So I became like a GTD, getting things done wizard. And then I learned really a lot about the content and I created an amazing program. In fact, it is one of the most highly rated programs for training network engineers. Media net promoter score of around 70. For context, the media net promoter score for IT training in the US is around 50. So we're consistently getting median of 70. I won. So two years, three years down the road, I won because I got the credibility that I was looking that I did not have at the beginning. I established this amazing training program. 
and I was promoted. And then I was given a new department. A new department was set, for, set up for me to run. The personal costs were terrible because from 2012 to 2015, on the 23rd or 24th of every December, I land back at the airport from some city in the world and then you just drive home and then just pass out for five days. Wake up, <laughs> go to the hospital. The doctor said, there's nothing wrong with you, but you're burning and you're going to kill yourself. That is me focusing just on efficiency and also one person machine. So that led to the second arc of my life. Now, when I was promoted, surprise, surprise, it was a missing manual, what it means to become a manager. I was not responsible for what it means to become responsible for other people's results. People don't teach you this stuff, right? That's the thing. Exactly. That is what management is about. You have to get results through other people, not of yours. And everything I learned in phase one, being, being the Uber expert, being the GTD master, was a weakness at this level. Imagine having to unlearn all of the things that have made you successful in the previous phase. But there's one thing I knew. Since I knew that I had to get results through other people, not me, I knew that I also knew that I needed to develop the equivalent of getting things done, but for the team. So fortunately, one of my first jobs out of university, in fact, while I was still at university, I was teaching at the business school. And I was teaching mostly Lean Six Sigma. And it's something that originated from GE and Motorola, etc. If you believe Aristotle that excellence is not an act, it's a habit. Here's my theory is this. A process is to a team what a habit is to an individual, an elevator of excellence, right? A process is to the team what a habit is to an individual. So if you want consistent excellence, you have to be really good at processing. And I say this because I know it is quite common in our world to speak people dunk on processes and all of that. And I say the magic to my success as a manager is because I operationalized processes. And there's nothing more freeing than when you master processes, not just because you hold the processes, but as a means to consistent excellence. So you put your OKRs and then there's processes driving that. So that was phase two. I had a team, because we operationalized processes, we became the model. The sheer number of positive reviews from what we were doing, we became the model for the rest of the company. Up till today, we still have the highest number of ISO certified processes in the company. Everywhere we went, people were always impressed. There's just three of you. How, how do you do this thing so consistently? What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. It's simply we had become master of processes. But something was still missing. So personally, I was a very efficient guy, a GTD wizard. Now, I trained the team who were good at processes, but we still lacked a framework for translating strategy into execution. And fortunately, because of my, the work I was used to do in the business school, I was already familiar to that problem of 67% of all strategies fail according to the Balance Scorecard Institute. So I knew that was something I needed to solve if I needed to be better in my job as a frontline manager, helping my team do a great job. It was in December 2014. I was flying home to Cameroon. So I bought this book at the airport, The Four Disciplines of Execution. Right? It's a book that lays out the 4DX methodology. Trust me, I'd read a lot of other books about strategy execution, but this was the first one that I felt, yes, this is the solution. So you were in an airport and picked up the 4DX book. The 4DX book. And then you were like, I'm going to read this and see what happens. And you're like, this is going to change everything. Exactly. I literally, I didn't eat. I just skipped meals. Six hours flights from Johannesburg to Douala. I just skipped all my meals because I was that engrossed in the book. Wow. There is something about if you've experienced a problem and then you see the solution, it hits you differently. True. 
Because I guarantee you, if I read that book two years prior, it would not have made that dent. Up to now in my story, you see me go from the individual contributor who's a GTD wizard to building a team, having to fumble through Edo Lean Six Sigma, and then realizing there's a gap. I figure out the personal efficiency, I figure out the team efficiency, but there was still a gap around the effectiveness part. So remember, again, my, my, my model of excellence at this time is efficiency, effectiveness, agility, and then quite later on, culture would come in. I figured between GTD and the Lean Six Sigma, I got a handle on the efficiency domain. I was looking for something around the effectiveness domain, and that's where execution and the 48 book came in. And then at some point, I remember, we're going to get into it. How did OKRs just really quickly come into the mix? Because 40X is heavy. I know. <laughs> we're going to talk about this in a little bit. I'm excited to get into that. But in OKRs, I'm like, okay, we could do this. I read 40X also. I was like, whoa. <laughs> How did you transition from the 40X to OKRs? Was it a similar experience where you were in an airport, you saw Measure What Matters, you swooped it up, you absorbed it for six hours nonstop and didn't eat. How did you get from the 4DX to the OKR part? We got to OKRs after our first implementation of 4DX. When I came back, of course, I implemented 4DX and we already had the model for operational excellence. We, did, we then became the model for behavioral change because we launched the company's first B2C product with zero additional budget, with zero additional staff by implementing 4DX. And it was intense. It was probably the most intense thing that we ever did as a team. And at the end of it, one of the things I do with my team is that most of quarter, in quarter one, we have a retreat where we just talk about it in our wins. I was expecting it to be all amazing and no good and to see all the things we've accomplished. And it was a disaster. It's a disaster. What? <laughs> yes. But you had all these accolades. The whole business was looking to you and everyone was saying, not great. Exactly. All of those were true, but two things. It's like the team just felt overworked. They felt unappreciated. Mm -hmm. And it felt as if in the constant relentless pursuit of excellence was tolerant of behaviors that were assholery, so to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And now, so two things came out. First of all, I was looking for something that was lower tempo. Okay. Lightweight, 4DX light. That is how I got into OKRs. And our first OKR, People always say online that you can't do OKRs without strategy. I say, no, that's not true. Now, the most important use of OKRs for me and my team was our first OKR built a no bullshit, no asshole team culture that we created in 2015 or 16. Up till today, if you come into my team. That was your first OKR? Yes, yes. Built a no asshole, no bullshit team culture. As a result of this failure I was just explaining to you. Wow. Wow. And now we created, right? I've got this problem that I need to solve. Yeah. It has nothing to do with strategy, but I definitely cannot succeed in my job without solving this problem. So let me be open about it. Let's define what a good team culture looks like. So we came, our first OKR was create a no bullshit, no asshole team culture. What were the key results? Because I think people are going to want to lean in on this. This is interesting. The words in this are no asshole, no bullshit. <laughs> The key words. Right. Very <laughs> important words. <laughs> Quite often you hear you can't do OKRs without things like psychological safety. One year, all of those things would have meant nothing to me. You can't do OKRs well without trust. Those things would not have meant anything until I've gotten to this point. Without the intensity and the success that came from the GTD, the Lean Six Sigma, the 40X, we wouldn't have got to the point where the limits 
on our excellence became things like psychological safety, trust, and culture. Wow. So you hit the ceiling, so to speak. Exactly. Through each of these acts that I'm talking about, there was a success and then a failure because I saw the limitation of that dimension, right? So remember, my, my working model at this time is excellence is simply efficiency plus uh, effectiveness plus agility. Between Lean Six Sigma and 4DX, I think I got those three elements. But it was when I got to the limit of all of those three, I discovered a third, that is culture. And of course, it's one of those things you've always known your whole life. Drucker said it. Culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? It's one of those things that you know intellectually until it hits you. And then it becomes something you understand viscerally. Yeah, because what you end up with is these weird organizational headwinds that you're creating for yourself. <laughs> for yourself, right? The team is doing it. And you're just like, why are we, why are we doing this? Yes. That's when I realized that when we created that OKR, build a no asshole, no bullshit team culture. What key to this was understanding that trust was a good team culture is built around trust. I think one of my first collaborations with Quantive was a blog post, how to build trust using OKRs. I love models because models are a way that I use to organize my thinking. So our culture was built around the seven habits of highly effective people and the 13 behaviors of trust. I'll tell you why these two books are important. Habits and behavior. I don't care about people's attitude. I care about their behavior and their habits. Things that I can see and can point to. Whoa, that is a nuance that's important. I don't care about people's attitude. So if you tell me, Mukam, you're arrogant, I'll just roll my eyes. <laughs> Doesn't matter. If you tell me, hey, Mukam, when you roll your eyes while I'm speaking to you, you come across as arrogant. I can't argue with that because you're pointing to a behavior. Right. And you can't argue with the person's feeling about it either, which affects them. Yes. You've pointed a behavior that you roll your eyes. And then this is how I feel about it. So two things you can't argue with because of what I'm aware that I rolled my eyes. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that I talked over you. Those are two behaviors. Now, the key result was you had this assessment built around the 13 behaviors of trust. So every week, I was giving feedback to each person on my team around the 13 behaviors. The good thing about the book is that it lays out very specific things to look for around behaviors that increase or reduce trust. And then at the end of it, we had a survey with other peers in the uh, peer organizations. What is the inter-team levels of trust? So we had key results around each person will raise the minimum trust levels based on those 13 behaviors. Each person is going to identify their lowest trust behavior and increase it by a certain number of points. And of course, your trust behavior is based on what other people see. Say about you. Right, so you were doing kind of a 360 review, but in a way that actually matters <laughs> for delivery. Like it actually matters, yeah. Yes, one of my lowest trust behaviors was, I'm embarrassed to say this was, I speak very brashly. Sometimes I was really harsh in the way I come across. And so of course, the determinants of that were going to be my team. So when I did this, the assessment, that was my lowest trust behavior. So I committed to working on it and getting that feedback was once every week for the 12 weeks. Then until we saw that everyone was raising their minimum trust calls. And then that's when we got to a point at the end of the quarter, we said, do we believe that we have the no bullshit, no asshole team culture? I will note that you did that and you were building habits because you focused on it for 12 weeks to tie back to a previous part of a framework you were thinking about. Habits on the individual level, processes on the team level. Exactly. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. 
processes are to teams, what habits are to individuals, elevators of excellence. And so when you mix them, when the team has processes that enables them to do excellent work, and each individual has the habits, the right habits, is just an amplification at multiple levels. Let's talk about the behaviors, because I cut you off just rudely then, and now I need to reflect on whether or not I'm also displaying asshole behaviors at the moment. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the second level or the lever that you, you worked with here, because that's one of your key results was, do we agree that we have a no asshole environment now, that we have worked on personal habits that benefit a better working environment, i.e. culture? So each person would identify what their weakest behavior was, and then, of course, we're doing this assessment, this survey that will go up every Monday before our weekly team planning meeting. And then we would aggregate that. Everyone could see at the beginning, this was my baseline. I scored, say, two out of 10 on, say, speak, uh, talk straight or speaking with respect, demonstrate respect, right? Those are some of the behaviors, specific behaviors that we're measuring. Remember, there are 13 behaviors. To say, improve all 13 behaviors would have been a recipe for disaster. So we said, identify your weakest one and improve it by a certain number of points, which means that for the next cycle, you could identify another one. If I felt, okay, so let's say my weakest behavior at the beginning was you know, speak with respect, right? Demonstrate respect. Now, if I was weak on that and I improved it, I could now look at, you know, okay, the next cycle, which one is now the weakest? Maybe, for example, I will now work upon that. And each time, I was not a determinant of whether I'd improve. It was based upon the 360s that we were getting from each other that says we're making progress here or not. So all of that tracked. And I believe that had we not gotten to this level of success where we were the model for operational excellence, for processes, Lean Six Sigma, for 4DX, you know, actually creating stuff, the importance of culture would not have been apparent. Can you imagine if you just go to a team and say, oh, here are some 13 behaviors of trust written by some guys at Franklin Covey, and I want to... <laughs> <laughs> and I want to impose this on you because we need to improve this because this guy said that strategy is eaten by culture for breakfast. Exactly, exactly. But our path had led us to the point when this became the most important thing that we could do. And therefore, it was meaningful. See, this is an example of OKRs with our strategy. I love that, is that you're actually approaching it at a moment of need where it's recognized that in order to break to the next level, this is what you need to do. And I also appreciate the fact that because a lot of people tell that you need strategy in order to have OKRs to work. I think in a way you did have strategy define the strategic thought or ideas that you need a healthy working environment for people to do their best work. Exactly, exactly. It's not necessarily something that was touted by executive leadership that you needed to do. You saw that as a need because you are in a place where you have achieved all of these things. Yet at this retreat, everyone is saying, we're dead and I'm annoyed with you. <laughs> I, yeah, I am proud of the work I'm doing, but gosh, this is not sustainable. Right? This is not sustainable for sure. So maybe we can transition to talking about 4DX to OKRs. Let me just finalize this, right? So remember, at this point, all of my challenges as I'm growing from one arc is trying to expand that model of excellence. There is efficiency, effectiveness, agility. And the last part, the part that we built using that built a no bullshit, no asshole team culture was culture. So my, my model for excellence is efficiency plus effect effectiveness plus efficiency plus agency all raised to the power of culture. Because if you get the culture, it's going to 100x, 1000x everything you're doing with about efficiency, effectiveness, and agility. 
So that's why I say my most effective use of OKRs was using it to transform culture on my team. Build a no asshole, no bullshit in culture. That's a really great objective and key result. Thank you for sharing that. Cool. Okay. I feel like that was the most comprehensive answer to the OKR origin story I have ever heard. See? That's what we're talking about today. This was amazing. Thank you very much. So let's talk about this 40X, which is heavy, and you achieved success clearly with it. And you have OKRs. I've heard you mention before that you use them depending on what you need because these are parts of your toolkit. Can you tell us a bit about the difference between 40X and OKRs, having implemented both in practice? This is not theoretical for you. Yeah, I would say 4DX has a more advanced and thoroughly defined body of knowledge than OKRs. The OKR origin story is in high output management by Andy Grove. That's the first time the the, the objectives and key results were mentioned, right? Of course, that's when he adopted MBOs, management by objectives. But the 4DX has a very comprehensive body of knowledge, right? It's a very specific way you must do X, Y, Z. And 4DX does a very excellent job defining and making a difference between lagging indicators and leading indicators. And you need both for 4DX. Okay, as you know, there's still some people who think your key results should be leading indicators. They could be lagging indicators. There's still, there's a lot more flexibility there. And then 4DX, one of the practices is the use of the visual indicators. You must have a chart that shows you where your leading indicators are relative to your, lag, to your scorecard, exactly. So that, those are practices that are called to 4DX. So I would say that 4DX is behavior change. There's an obsession with outcomes over outputs in the OKR community, right? <laughs> there is. And I'm going to ask you your take on that in a second. There's an obsession around it. But 4DX says, for me, it's been about, and I'm lucky that I come to OKRs from 4DX and then Six Sigma. For me, it is not a simple black or white. It is about value. Every time it's about value. This thing, that thing that you're going to call a key result, is there value in it for someone? If there is, for me, that's fine. It's, that's fine. Now, in 4DX, your lagging indicator could still be doing a big project. This project is important. We all know that while we are looking for outcomes, there's some outputs that take a lot of time, and you definitely need to get them out of the pack and do them. So it is perfectly okay in 4DX to say, you know what, you want to complete project X. That's a lagging indicator. We know that we have, say, let's say in your case, to go from 63 to 500 episodes of due to deadlines. That's a classic lag indicator, what you call your wildly important goal, right? So there's no obsession around it. It has to be an outcome or an output. No, it is, does it bring value to the team? Does it bring value to someone, the team, the organization, or some customer? So I would say that if you absolutely must get it done, Use 4DX. Now, if you want more flexibility, because the way OKRs are practiced now, okay, let's take this and try. At the end of the quarter, it didn't work out, then we learn and try something else. No, that's not. No, 4DX is, I absolutely must get this done. So I said, this is my wildly important goal. You said the, the leading measures. And then your cadence, your weekly meetings, you're checking. Am I there? If not, you change your behavior. That's agility in practice until you actually get it. So to make sure it's super clear, the instances in business where it makes more sense to use 4DX versus OKRs really is predicated on, do you really need to get this done by a certain date or you have a legit milestone? And I can imagine organizations that are maybe migrating off of something to something else, right? If you're talking software, I'm sure there's other instances where maybe there's like new compliance. Oh my goodness, when GDPR came out, you had to just do it. 
and you had to make sure that everything was in yeah. line with what the new regulation said because there were going to be negative consequences if you didn't do that. Exactly. So that makes sense. And so those are the opportunities where you're like 40x makes sense. Exactly. If you're familiar with the exploit exploit framework, we talked about this. Yeah. I think 40x is really good in the exploit. OKRs are good for the explore part of the business. So that's how I summarize it. I would agree with that. That's a good framing. Okay. So there are a lot of canvases out there and you're kind of, I would say famous for the zipper canvas, which didn't actually start off being named the zipper canvas, but you've worked that out over time, <laughs> which I'm actually glad. Like the zipper canvas went through a rebrand. I don't think people knew it, but they didn't. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the tool, like the part of the toolkit, the zipper canvas. We'll start there. And then you have this OKR canvas, which we're going to talk in a bit. Start with the zipper. Tell us about it. At the end of all my acts, as I was struggling from an individual contributor to a manager who became built a team that was a model of excellence, one of the things I realized, and that was what led me to studying the Chief Excellence Officer Academy, is no initiative will ever succeed unless it is owned and bought by the frontline manager. Trust me, there is no consultant in the world that could have gotten me to do the things that I did. None. Right on. Right on. It's because I saw a problem, I dug into it, went and looked for a solution. It doesn't mean I can't use a consultant. It simply means that if I could say, okay, you guys, I'm, solving, I'm struggling with this problem. I need this, I need a solution. What do you have to help me? But then I must take your proposal, own it, and deploy it with my team. Because the act of solving problems with your team, that is magical. One of the biggest problems, if you've been reading any business magazine article, is the problem of silos. Everyone complains the silos. And I always laugh because I say silos is a red herring. <laughs> it's a red herring because it is simply executives don't want to do the hard work of fixing processes, of working with alignment. It isn't a complaint to put a blame on something called silos. A good analogy, in most developing countries, the biggest problem you find is, oh, there's corruption. I'm sorry, there's corruption in America. It didn't stop them from developing. But an incompetent president blamed corruption and not the fact that they weren't able to put a compelling vision, help with execution of projects and measure and track things. It's easy to just put because once you say corruption, everyone is intellectually lazy. Oh, yes, there's corruption. Same thing if you say it's silos. It's intellectual laziness in, in, in management. Oh, it's a silos problem. We know there's been a silos problem for as long as we... Oh, Mukam, you're going to be... You are ruffling feathers today, sir. <laughs> you're the first one, I think, that I have ever heard on the show talk about silos as if it's not a given. Interesting. It's a problem that can be fixed. And it's that simply because most teams do not really understand how the team or the organization creates, delivers, and captures value. Because if it's if each team truly, on first of all, added, so here is how I solve the silos problem. The business model canvas is a wonderful tool because on one page, it tells how the story of how an organization creates, delivers, and captures value, right? One page, so everyone can understand at the level of the company. When you come down at the level of the team, each team then asks, what is our role in this business model canvas? I, when I started off, I would I'd use a modified version of the business model canvas to create that kind of clarity. How does our team create, deliver, and capture value for the company? So I use a business model canvas for that. Then over time, I simply just evolved it to 
let's see, that's how I developed the Super Canvas, simply because executives, and we like to talk about outcomes and value and all of that. Most people, they're just from there what they do. What's the most common question when you meet someone at a conference? What do you do? It's certain about what they do. So the Super Canvas built on that. We do X. Because we do X, we produce Y, an output. What are the benefits that a customer gets, the outcomes and the impact? In order to do the things that we do, what inputs, resources, and skills do we need? Those are the inputs. And who supplies them? Those are the suppliers. And then at the bottom, we've got resource measures and production metrics. So like you've taken the Kellogg framework and the business model canvas, and if they had a kid, you've got the sipper. That's what it feels like to me. Yes, exactly, exactly. So simply take from the business model canvas, because if you do the business model canvas, when you look at the activities part, you drop the activities part, it goes straight into the product, the processes and projects part. That's the, that's the activities part of the super canvas. And I did that because since we already identify ourselves by what we do, let me start from there. Rather than saying, what's the outcome? Who's the customer? Let's start from where people are. Because, I mean, in the early iterations, I always say, what's the purpose of this team? And I'll get blank stares. <laughs> It's true. Creating a team charter for a lot of people is not an exercise most people are familiar with. They got hired to do a specific thing. It's usually in your job description. I was hired to deliver training. I was hired to do HR, do payroll and all of that. So then, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. What are the things that you create as a result of what you do? The outputs. Who uses those outputs? A customer. And now, going back to how does this solve the problem of silos? Your customer is either outside the company or, and that's partnering within the organization. Your supplier is either outside the organization or another department, another team within the organization. So you see how you start to get rid of the problem of silos. And then the second thing it does is, which is how it helped one, one of the guys I coached, was it enables individuals that are deep inside the organization that are not exposed to external customers to see the value of what they do. Because the guy in finance, oh, my job here is to approve purchases and all of that. But if you have a string of super canvases, this guy can say, oh, this approval that I just made is an input that the engineers then use to create a product that these customers use. String of, I did something, and here is the chain of how value gets added to it until it gets to the external customer and brings revenue to the company that enables my salary to be paid. It's full circle. That resonates with me deeply. I used to be a deputy comptroller at a base a long time ago. I will not say when, that would date me. And I remember thinking to myself, to your point, I am paying for things. That's literally the job. I'm just making sure that we have budget and we're allocating that budget across all of the different programs appropriately. And had I had the super canvas, and I understood it then, but putting it in a framework of, my work impacts airmen who are going to deployment in defense of the United States of America. My work is being provided by taxpayers who trust us to deploy that money in defense of the United States of America. You start to attach yourself not to only the work that you do and why you were brought in to do that work, but to your point, that chain of value starts to become realized and you have this awareness of how you fit. And note, I think this is interesting and this will lead into OKR activation because I think that's the next canvas I th will attach this to. Where do we want to wrap up this part of the conversation, Mukam? Because I feel like 
there is a lot to the zipper canvas. I'm we're going to share it in the resources so that people can get access to it. I think that'll be cool too. Yeah. What do you want? Is there anything else you want to add to this? Yeah. In terms of OKRs, the, 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 the most important job of a zipper canvas that it creates context for you to create OKRs that meaningful. Because the traditional thing is everyone, let's do OKRs. You get the consultant comes in, you jump, let's brainstorm. But imagine if you already create a super canvas, you have a clear model. Everyone in the team has a clear model of how we create, deliver, capture, and measure value. The level of the brainstorming for your OKRs is it's in the stratosphere. Because you're not going from a you're not coming from a blank page. You have something to edit. Exactly. Cost and effect relationships between the inputs, the things that you do, where it goes and how it creates value. And the bottom part. Because one of the biggest problems people have when they do OKR is that they don't even know what to measure. They don't have a culture of tracking things. The bottom part of the super canvas gives you a whole set of, I call that measure what matters. Things that, metrics that actually matter, right? So you can start looking by you. You can simply say, okay, by the way, we have these metrics that represent how we create, deliver, and capture value. These ones are underperforming. Let us start with the ones that we know are underperforming and, deliver, and create our OKRs from there. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Dreams with Deadlines, the podcast that brings you real stories of trials and victories in business, brought to you by Quantive. Quantive is a strategy execution platform that helps organizations create greater strategic agility and excel at execution. With more than 2,000 customers, Quantive helps companies close the gap between strategy and execution to achieve their best possible. And now back to the show. Let's talk about this in the context to bring it back to your previous life where your team was insanely excellent. Because I know that you use the Sipper Canvas in real life with your team. Can you share, walk through the example from like a network engineer like yourself and your team looking at the Sipper Canvas and filling in the blanks, so to speak? Maybe we can walk through the practical exercise. I do want, let me just walk through it. your podcast. Yeah, let's do it. Let's right? do it. So let me share my screen. And good. So I just took the liberty of just trying to sketch your the super canvas for dreams with deadlines. Let's start with the things that you do, the processes and projects. You have to source guests, correct? Correct. You have to produce and publish a podcast, correct? This is correct. And then maybe you have to distribute and promote it. That's right. The outputs are you have the podcast episode and then maybe you have those reels, isn't it? What else? Reels or some of the audiograms that you do that I've seen you also do as well. We do audiograms. We do actually now we're starting to do LinkedIn articles as repurposed content. So there's different ways to basically repurpose content for sure. So those are outputs. Now the question is who uses those outputs? The customer is you're looking for the OKR practitioners out there, right? Yes. That's your office. But the other customer, I think, is the podcast's guest is a customer. They are. That's right. I would say so. And I would say our internal team, because our marketing team shares this in our newsletter, so it's additional content we can share and reference. So our marketing team uses it. Our sales team uses it when they want to share with a new prospect, for example. There are different ways that you can use it, for sure. Exactly. Now, they want to divide outcomes at each. For the OKR practitioner, is simply because they're learning from your brilliant interviewing of so many experts, they gain operational insights about OKRs that they won't get from just a book. For the podcast guests, what do they get? They get exposure. They get exposure. It's like marketing for them as well. 
Then these are short to medium term. Now, for the long term, impacts are defined that as what are the long term benefits? Short to medium term benefits are outcomes. For the long term, for the OKR practitioner is going to be able to build, if they gain operational insights, then the impact that they can build a strategy to execution operating system that enables them to be better at executing strategy. Make sense? Absolutely. Now, now, these are the things that you do. Let's go back to the processes, the activities that you do. One of the inputs, you need the insights. Yes. Insights. These are uh, insights from who provides the insights. The podcast guest. So you see, your guest is both a customer and a supplier. That's true. Now, what else do you need for all of these things? You need leads on guests, right? Leads on guests. We do. So for example, like this one, I think one of your colleagues... I chatted with one of your colleagues in your Slack group, and that is how he talks to you about me, right? That's right. That was an input from who's a supplier. So in that case, it was a customer success manager that happened to be in our community. Yes, CS manager. Yep, that's right. Good. So then you go, you know, the things you do, processing and projects, the, so essentially you're saying you transform these in, this inputs, the insights and the leads and the guests, using these processes and projects to produce this outputs that these customers use to derive these benefits. And those inputs come from these suppliers, the podcast guests, the CS manager. Yeah, of course, there's a couple of other ones. Now, let's go to resource metrics. How do you know what are the measures that quantify the outcomes and the benefits to the customers? Number of listeners, right? Podcast rating. Right now, you're 5 on 5 on Apple, on, on iTunes. Number of leads for content. Because at the end of the day, remember, this is you. I'm imagining you have a team that does the podcast. But if you looked at the quantity business model, what on the revenue side is you, you obviously the reason you're doing this is because you want to generate business for quantity, right? That's correct. So leads for quantity could be a results metrics because if there's a way to track how many leads you're getting, because the people who are listening to you constantly, they're benefiting from it. And then as you're doing the podcast, you are dropping advertisements for the product. When they actually want to deploy it, what product do you think they're going to use? Of course, quantif, right? And so you're getting leads, right? That's for the results, results metrics. And then for the production metrics, production metrics are simply the things around outputs, the activities that measure how well you do. Things like, in the meantime, how long does it take you from you get a lead to you actually record a podcast? That's, that might be a metric of efficiency metric, right? Yep. Things like the publishing streak. Right now you're at 63 episodes. I don't think you've missed a week. But that might be something that's important. Also, the guest backlog. How many guests do you have waiting their wings to be interviewed? Because that's an indication that enough people find it valuable enough that they want to be host on the podcast. So here you are on one page, how the Dreams with Deadlines team creates, delivers, captures, and measures value. Look on, I feel very exposed. And yes, <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> Absolutely, that makes total sense to me. Cool. So now, if you have that, for example, then every person on your team can start saying, you know, it's like, you can say, oh, okay, if this thing is not working, it, we want this outcome, right? Which customer do we want that outcome from? What outputs must we create from for them? Then we should put something in the output box. What activities do we start doing that we're not currently doing? The activities. What inputs do we need and from whom? And then what are the measures and the metrics? then you have a sort, that's how you create OKRs that are measurable quantitative, but also that the team can accomplish using their effort and creativity rather than wishing on the keys of Lady Luck. 
Do you think that the super canvas can be used? Because I'm thinking about it, if we think about it from two places, you talked about exploit and explore. Yes. And that OKRs are more akin to the explore versus the exploit. Where does the zipper canvas in your mind fit on that spectrum or does it not matter? It is a classic exploit tool because it is describing the status quo. But you can also use it in explore. How do you want the future to be? Like I just like I just said, let's say you wanted to the dreams with deadlines team wanted to, a new outcome. Let's say start actually generating revenue from maybe doing an online course or a certification program, right? You can say, okay, one of the things we need are leads for our certification program, right? That becomes an outcome for what? I mean, for who? You have to define the customer and put it there. All of these things don't exist. So you're using the fact that this is, these are the current capabilities. This is how the team delivers, creates and captures value. And then you are extrapolating into the future. What might be, how might this other alternative future look like? So you're literally prototyping how a different future that's in the explore domain might look like. That makes sense. Very cool. Okay. Okay. Our activation, you have a canvas for this as well. Can you share what this looks like? Cause it seems like the super canvas tees up a really nice segue into the OKR com activation conversation. When you, before, prior to starting OKRs, all of these practices are practices I developed my team that I now teach and coach other managers around, right? So. Before you start talking about what OKRs and you do, super canvas, everyone understands how the team creates, delivers, and captures value. So you understand what is, what you can accomplish by your effort and creativity rather than waiting on, wishing on luck. Now, you create an OKR. You create an OKR. And my one OKR, at least when you're starting, just one. Don't make the mistake of doing two. That's one of my worst mistakes. I had five OKRs when I was starting. <laughs> 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 I think we all do that. We all do that. We have too many. And then you realize that this is actually not helpful because we're not able to do all of it. No, we can't. So you, so you super canvas that enables you to create high quality OKRs. Now, once you do that, I have this matrix I call the key resource quality matrix that enables any manager to evaluate the quality of a key resource. I use it in my OKR teardown clinic sessions. If you've seen that, seen those. Now, this is where there's often this euphoria. If you do this really well and you have a high quality OKR, there's a euphoria. Yes, that clarity is like <laughs> there's a drop release into your system. It's quite tempting to just believe that there's the um, delusion that because I have a clear objective, it's magically going to transform itself into results. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I think there's even a psychological trick at work that says every time you have a clear goal and you talk about it, your brain doesn't have a distinction between a clearly articulated goal and you actually, ha you actually haven't done it. This is true. So it's quite easy. Yeah, so it's quite easy to just not, you know, the euphoria and then just let things be as, and then you wake up in the 14th week and, but I mean, we're okay as, we are not doing well on that. So that's what I'm saying. Once you do the good job of articulating a good OKR, activate, what do I mean by activation? One of my favorite quotes is from James Clare that says, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. Activation is around building a system that makes sure that you actually accomplish your OKR. It's not just the things that you're going to do, but in my perspective, what you will not do. Because 
every team has a limited amount of time and passion and engagement. So your job as a manager is to be very judicious in the use of that time, the passion, and even the trust. Right? They're not going to, you don't. No manager has limited amounts of trust and engagement and passion and time from their team. So your number one job as a, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever thought of this. It made me think because I like to think in acronyms. Sadly, you said passion, time, and engagement. If you said passion, engagement, and time, pets have a lifespan. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> exactly. Right. No one has an unlimited supply of pets. It doesn't. No one has an unlimited supply of pets. I know that sounds silly, but we'll remember it now. Your pets do not have unlimited amounts of love and devotion to you. It, no, they will get annoyed and walk away. Yes. <laughs> so part of activation is that you define one. Okay, we have this OKR. What are the necessary conditions? What needs to be true? for us to be able to accomplish this. This is where you start bringing ideas of idea testing, hypothesis testing into OKRs. One needs to be true. Okay. One of the examples I always use for, like when I teach and coach, I use the example of, a, if I have a personal, okay, around personal health, say optimize my health and have key results around, say, cardiovascular fitness, around weight, around maybe amount of stress in my body, say as measured by the amount of cortisol in my bloodstream. Certain things must be true. It must be true that through diet and exercise, I can influence weight and cardiovascular fitness. Because if these things are not true, and because going to do surgery to lose weight is not an option for me, then it is not possible that I can accomplish it. Okay, now you can look at your super canvas and your business model canvas or link canvas, whichever one you're using, and say, what needs to be true of our super canvas or our business model canvas or our link canvas for us to be able to accomplish this? It needs to be true that, let's take the case of uh, dreams with deadlines. It needs to be true, for example, if you want to grow from to, to 500 leaderships and maintain your five, your perfect, your five star rating consistently. It needs to be true that more and more people in the world are adopting OKRs as a strategy execution framework. Because if that's not true, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to grow quantity to that level. More viewers, higher ratings. So it, it, it is just good for the team to just articulate these necessary conditions. Then from there, one of the things I like to, to, to do is that if your key results are not already, do not already have leading indicators, just put, just think, what are the signals that we'll look at week to week that will tell us that we're in the right direction? Those are your leading indicators. Before you go to activities, what things will we start, what new projects or initiatives will we start? Which ones will we stop doing because we have up. We don't have all the pets in the world, and the pets are not going to give us the affection for all of their lives. <laughs> then also, you're only doing existing activities. Which existing activities are you going to do more of? Which you, which will you do fewer of? And then what resources do you need? Because something has to come off the list. That makes sense. Yeah. And then what resources? What skills? What things you need for budget? What tools? That is what I call activation. Why don't people talk about this? This makes a lot of sense because I think a lot of times, and maybe what you're trying to describe here is a model of forecasting the future in a way, because what you're able to articulate before you even begin in the efforts is thinking about, is this a, even a non-starter because we don't have this, that, or the other, or these conditions don't hold true. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I know sometimes the HR guys come, come, tend to come at me and say you're you are over planning <laughs> and you're over engineering it because it seems like over engineering OKRs. And I often say, I think there's a quote, one, one of my favorite quotes again from, I think, Dwight Eisenhower says, planning is everything, plans are nothing. 
the fact that the team has these conversations about necessary conditions, leading indicators, what will start, stop, do more of, and do less of, that is everything because it enables them to be more agile. Because you've thought about one scenario and what might go wrong and a hypothesis, when things do go wrong, you're in a better position to adapt than someone who just, okay, here are my OKRs, let me throw things against the wall and see what sticks. I would also argue too, I'm curious what the Agile community would say about this, is that what you're injecting into the OKR process is systems thinking. Thank you. you perfect. That's what the Sipper Canvas arguably does, is you're, you're thinking about not only your contribution or your team's contribution, if you want to take it to the level of team or department, doesn't even matter, but you're thinking about the system in which you exist and the levers of influence that you have. And then by taking it in a step further with the OKR activation canvas, you're thinking about the resourcing, the staffing, the inputs that you need in order to ensure a greater likelihood of success. If you didn't think about it this way, I'm wondering what agilists would say would be the alternative because you're not gonna just go out there winging it. Absolutely not. Because I think that's what a lot of people tend to do is we wrote our OKRs, obviously we're gonna succeed in them. But to your point, without having negotiations with senior leaders to say, something needs to come off the list because we're not gonna be able to achieve this because we're overburdened already in terms of our capacity. That's one thing. The other could be, we actually don't even have that capability. The other could be, we don't have the technology, the tooling to enable this, to your point. So it what you're asking people to do is to think in systems. And I think that's beneficial, personally. This is probably one of the things that makes you an amazing host, because you just articulated the overaching, where the, the origin of all of this. I think one of your questions, I think you were going to ask me was, what's my favorite book? The book that has most changed my thinking. Yes. It is The Fifth Discipline. The Art and Practice of Systems Thinking by Peter Senge. It's, it, so all of these things, from the SIPA canvas to the uh, OKR activation, to all of it is system, bringing a systems thinking perspective to OKRs. So thank you very much for articulating it better than I could have. No, not at all. You're the one who has all the great content and the genius of having implemented this at various arcs to get to this part of the journey. So let's talk about OKRs in terms of your experience. And you did this for a team. And then this became a thing that you did for the whole organization. That's pretty awesome. How did you approach that integration to make this a part of kind of the process of how the business operates? Because that's what you did. You injected a new procedure, a new process for the organization to be thinking about how to capture, measure, deliver value, all of these things that we just talked about. So can you tell us about your kind of story, the telecommunications story, if you will, on a rollout? Because that's effectively what you did. No, the, the rollout in my company, okay, I work for one of the five organizations that manages internet numbers. So if you're on the internet, there are five organizations in the world that manage the addresses that are used in the computers. Only five. The only five. Yeah, only five. So I work for one of them. Yeah. So we all telecommunication service providers, they need to get the numbers from one of the five of us. Now, there is, there's two ways you can influence the executives, the higher-ups, to implement some kind of change. One of them is that you're a good salesman. I'm not a good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're pitching me pretty well today. <laughs> I'm sold on OKRs, so. 
And the other one is you have to maybe have some charm. I don't, that's not me. My thing is I want the conviction of my results to speak for myself. Right? So, where, you see, what, I'm lucky that my boss back then, when he hired me, he quickly understood something about me. Point the direction and get out of my way. And I believe in freedom through extreme accountability. I own this. I'll go to the ends of the earth, above and beyond to accomplish the result and document it for everyone else to see. So that I can show you it's not magic. It's a repeatable success at X. It's a repeatable process. And you can see how I started, failed. When, when I am as proud to talk about your performance because I can also see that in almost in every period of work, I always have the most extensive list of documented failures. Right? Yeah. I am as proud of the list of documented failures of the poor reviews from customers as I am proud of the things that I've accomplished because those failures are simply lessons how I got better. So I think the reason that it was easy for the rest of the company to adopt this was because there was no contest. Every time we met, there was a clear difference, right? Who is a, which team is doing best at X? They'll call it, it screens my team. Which team is doing best as processes? My team. Which team has the highest customer satisfaction ratings? It's my team. Which team is that? So the, the results are there. They're also documented. I'm very open around, this is how I started feeling. This is how I'm succeeding. So here is a repeatable process. Anyone can follow it and they can get the same results. I don't have to have a lot of charm or ability to sell. Here I mean, here's it. I've done it. I've documented it. You can see that I didn't, I wasn't born with it. I started to see how much I screwed it up at the beginning. See how I feel. See what the bad reviews, right? And see how it has progressed over. Here's the documentation. Here's a system that anyone else can follow. So that's what that builds a no. When I was talking about the, how we build trust, what there are two main components, components of trust. There's competence and there's this character, right? So one of the dimensions of trust is that, that this person knows how to do their job, even if they're a liar, right? And the joke is that, you know, if you go to, if you go to, to the hospital, so if you know for a fact that you need a surgeon, you want the most competent surgeon to do it, even if they're a liar and they're a cheat. Right, that is one that's a competence dimension of trust. So, because of the systematic way in which I do things and document, and I'm willing to teach and share, that builds a certain amount of trust in the competence dimension, which makes up, for example, my really brash approach to, to talking sometimes. <laughs> right, you say, Okay, yeah, he's brushing the way he speaks, but there's a certain it gets talked down, but he's very open about how he has failed and is willing to teach other people, here's a system that anyone else can adopt and get better. So it wasn't that difficult for me to say, okay, you know what? I want everyone else, every other team, to have the same levels of operational excellence. It's going to make our jobs easier. So it was an easy sell. Walk us through the rollout of OKRs across your organization to basically take the excellence that you saw with your team and expand that to the rest of the organization. Can you talk us through like a cycle? Okay. When my boss first saw my team, we write quarterly reports. Right? So when he started seeing this consistency of, we do really great work, to get accolades from customers about the quality of the work that my team is doing. He said, okay, we'd like to roll this OKRs thing around you know, to the rest of the company. So the first thing I did, a retreat for the management team, where I taught them OKRs. And then the thing that I did was, I looked at our strategic objective. Our strategic objective then, we had like most strategic objectives, I mean, the goals were a bit, the goals were a bit fluffy and all of that. Right? So we, over a period of five days, I helped, I articulate those strategy objectives into three OKRs. 
and they were measurable, quantifiable, and it brought a, month, a certain amount of clarity. And of course, prior to doing this, I did a super canvas, right? Because for the first time, and I think the reason it succeeded, the reason the goals, the OKRs that we created, resonated was because of the super canvas insights we did. Because then that was the first deliberate attempt at solving the perennial silo problem that everyone wants to use on their skills. So this is how, as we call the regional internet registry, we create, deliver, and capture value. And so everyone could see how they fit into that picture. Now, when they saw that big picture, the strategic plan, the strategic objective suddenly made sense. And they were able to question, this, this does not make sense in terms of a business number. And so when we decompose those into OKRs, right, then the, everyone could tell, yes, this is where I, this is the key result that my department or my team ties into. So that's how we had the company level OKRs at the first instance. Then at that point, some of the guys that were working in my team, they actually were then helping the rest. They became coaches to other heads of departments. And they were quite happy to do that. Since I've been doing it for a while, I've written lots of documentation on our company wiki. Lots of documentation. Yeah. So apart from the, there was enough documentation for how to do it. And then there were individuals on my team that were, were OK, our champions to the rest of the company. So that kind of smoothened the process. Would you say that there's anything nuanced to the way that you approach OKRs? Because there's a, the interesting thing about OKRs, and I learned this from Felipe Castro, he describes it as, to your point earlier, it's kind of open sourced. It's very flexible. Every organization can adapt it to their specific needs, which I think is a benefit. It's not like the balanced scorecard method or let's say 40X that is really, it's very prescriptive. Was there anything nuanced about the way that you approached OKRs that might vary from what people have perhaps read in Measure What Matters or any of the other books that they probably have read? I learned OKR reading books. I read the book by Ben and Namot, then I read Radical Focus. This example is in Measure What Matters. This famous example where a key result at one, at one level becomes the objective at another level. For a long time, it's a very seductive idea for someone who's an engineer. Because there's that tight coupling, but it's a really bad idea in practice. Because once you do that, you really mess the OKRs at the lower levels. If you take the objective at the company level, sorry, the key result at the company level, and make it an objective at the team level, you, that's no longer an OKR, right? That's just a project. It doesn't compose into a project. Now, one of the things that I've come to subtly see the, the difference about my approach is that. If it were up to me, if I were doing a greenfield implementation of OKRs, I'd just say OKRs are best as a team level thing, right? At the level of the company, do a good strategic plan, strategy, clarify it, do the business model, then don't do OKRs. Leave OKRs at a team level. The OKRs should be done to align to the strategy and the business model. So company as a business model is clear, everyone understands it. There's a strategy, company level, right? Leave it there. So the things that are going to track. Then at the alignment, each team can create their super canvas and their OKRs and align to strategy. It's going to be faster, so you don't have the different cycles, so it's going to be faster. And it's going to be faster and much more flexible. But with the strategy definition, would you recommend that senior leaders also expose what measures they're trying to move? 
Yes, you could, you could articulate your strategic objectives as strategic OKRs. That's what I'll do, right? These are strategic objectives, strategic OKRs, because we don't want fluffy, fluffy objectives. But you want the objectives and the measures to be persistent, that this is the general direction, and then leave the explicit quantification at the level of the team. And then when you bring in the budgets, you can say, okay, fine. Since you define, let's say, okay, capture market share, there's a broad, there's a broad target at company level, what amount of market share we're looking for. Then at the team level, on a quarterly basis, that's where you, you start having different, what you call sub-targets or sub-quantifications. So it is a form of OKRs. You're just not thinking that it should be explicitly defined as OKRs at the, the company level. Interesting. No, no, to be clear, I, think, I, I agree about this. OKRs are not strategy. Right. OKRs are not strategy. Strategy is where to play, how to win, right? How to, OKRs are a tool in the how to win domain of strategy, right? No, sorry, the, 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 the management structures of how to win and where to play. That's where OKRs come because you want to bring clarity about where to play and how to win. OKRs can help you do that at the company level. You just don't want to be too, I'd rather be a persistent model, right? That in the three or four years where we expect this strategy, we want to have captured X amount of market share rather than saying this it has to be this amount per year from X to Y each year, X to Y each year at, at OKRs. I'll leave that X to Y and there is fixed values of targets at a team level. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So first thing I want to do is, first of all, get rid of those multiple hierarchies of OKRs because first of all, it takes a lot of time. In the real world, there's no politics involved. It's just everyone wants the company to thrive, right? Everyone wants what is best for the company. In the real world, there's egos, there's politics, there's stuff. <laughs> and all of that mess about human nature gets rolled into the OKR process. Sorry, I don't have a canvas on fixing that. <laughs> the only canvas on fixing that is build trust. <laughs> and you see, it's why it goes back to on my team. I do something that most people don't do. Anyone tells you don't use OKRs to perform the pressure. I do, and the world is where the world is where I mean my team still performs. You don't stand back simply because my first OKR was about culture. Build a high build a no bullshit, no asshole team culture. If we had not done that, I would not be able to use OKRs to perform the pressure today. I don't recommend it. No, I don't recommend it. Absolutely not. Right? It's because I was maybe it's dumb luck that that was our first OKR about building a culture. So we've gotten to the point where we can do that. So then I'm influential enough that I can fight the battles with HR and you know, it doesn't become a problem. But I don't recommend You don't recommend what part, just to be clear? People use OKRs for performance appraisals. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. And I use it for the same reason I love OKRs. There's three more dimensional goals. I want my directs to improve, right? And I want to improve along multiple dimensions. I want to improve um, around, around skills, around, okay, the, around no bullshit, around no asshole, around growth. So the best way to articulate that multidimensional goal for someone to develop is an OKR. But the problem is that there's other things about the culture and the politics. That's what actually ruins it. I agree with the advice. I don't recommend it, but I do use it because of a fluke that I was lucky enough to have started with, building a high level, high trust in the team. Very cool. Okay, we're going to wrap this up with quick fire questions. You ready? Yes, I am. What is your dream with a deadline? To be able to train 10,000 managers 
through the Chief Excellence Officer Academy in the next five years. I like how specific that is. All of the things I've talked about that they, the tools are developed, all of them in my work, they have a program called the OKR Deployment Accelerator. The OKR Deployment Accelerator Managers. It's all of these tools and the lessons are all part of it. From culture, you know, from context, SIPA or business model canvas to creating OKRs, activating them, to building the culture that supports them. And then, of course, wrapping all that through system thinking and trust. They're part of the Chief Excellence of the Academy. I want to be able to train 10,000 frontline managers through this in the next five years. That's really awesome. You've mentioned that you are just as proud of your failures as you are of your successes. I think that's great. People learn a lot from failure. What would you say would be your greatest kind of strategy execution fail to date? What'd you learn? What do you call it? The expat's curse. I said two. The first one is I made a big, big OKR for everyone, everywhere, all the time. <laughs> that's the very first one. An OKR for everyone, everywhere, all the time. <laughs> right. I, I was listening to one of the, the origins of the word priority. Priority, I think the origin was supposed to be, it was, it was never, there was nothing like priorities. It was always priority. Priorities is a recent manipulation, right? So it's supposed to focus on, if you're focusing on everything, then you don't have focus. So that whole idea of starting by in the company is doing OKRs all the time for everything. That was the biggest mistake that I made. So that's why now I do, when I coach and teach managers, I say, you know what, I want one OKR. Because like I said, any idiot can come down with, come up with five OKRs. But the conversations that it takes to come down to one is going to test the measure of your team. The amount of trust, what is truly important, how well you understand the value creation process. If the, what, that's what it takes to come down to one. It is much more difficult. It's easy, it's a cop-out to come up with five. That's why it's easy. Because we don't have the guts to say no to X no to why. So we say yes to everything. That's copying them. But what, it, I mean, the simple act of coming up with just one OKR is going to 10x the level of trust, the level of direct speaking rather than bullshitting on your team. If you come up with just one OKR, that's what I recommend is this. Just one. Or at least one for each key result area. If you have, if you yeah. Where do you think OKRs are headed? Oh, God. <laughs> I think that as they're getting popular, the, as they're getting more popular, they're going to be, first of all, it's, they're going to be abused quite a lot, right? So OKRs, unlike, say, the 4DX, the Lean Six Sigma, or the project, they don't have a canon, a body of knowledge. So it's open source, so everyone has their twist on it, right? And so someone might do, use it the wrong way, but still get good results with it. Then that just makes things quite confusing. I think that the way to go through a process where, I mean, we're already seeing this, where people are coming, how much they hate OKRs, and there's other alternatives, like narratives and whatever, some equality ridiculous, right? <laughs> Almost every other week on Twitter, there's a thread, someone ranting about OKRs. And I usually go look at those threads. And what is someone who really doesn't have no clarified context, who doesn't know how to, who doesn't understand the role of a manager in driving OKRs, started OKRs poorly, and therefore it's just left a bad chase in people's mind. So I think we're going to grow, it's going to get really worse in the next about two to three years before it gets better. So hopefully with like on this podcast or people like you with a platform, we keep promoting what is good practice so that at some point we can have an, an unofficial body of knowledge of good practice around OKRs. That's one solution. That's in there. 
That's an, I, I feel like you've just spoken into a dream of mine. Thank you for that. (laughs) This has been a wonderful conversation. I love how practical it got. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Demi. Thank you very much. And here's to the next 100 episodes. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we invite you to join the Dreams with Deadlines community. Dreams with Deadlines is a global network of ambitious business leaders and innovators who are passionate about using OKRs and agile practices to build high-performing cultures, achieve bold goals, and influence our world for the better. Learn more and join us at dwd.community.